Sword and Laser is brought to you by you. If you get a dollar's worth of value from the show, how about giving us a dollar back? Head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it is so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and of course, amazing discussions from fans just like you. And today we are very happy to welcome to the show author Catherine M. Valenti. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Of Thanks course. for joining us. You know, we are we're thrilled to have you, and our audience is equally thrilled. They they posted a ton of great questions um, in our forums over at goodreads.com. Uh, so we should probably just jump right into it. But first, I wanted to prime our listeners who maybe haven't heard of you in the past. Um, Catherine is, of course, an author and a poet whose first novel, The Labyrinth, came out in tw- 2004. She's since gone on to write many books, including the Fairyland series, which started with the Andre Norton Award for YA Literature-winning novel, The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland, in a ship of her own making, the first self-published book to win a major literary award. Uh, she's won or been nominated for basically every literary award since then, uh, but we're kind of most jealous of her Hugo for Best Fan Cast, <laughs> SF Squee Cast. So welcome to the show, as I said, and that is, yeah, we've been we've been egging for that one for a while, so we're a little <laughs> bit jelly on that part. Well, I'm sure that you'll get it one of these days. It's a good category, and there's been nothing but awesome winners. We'll submit this episode. <laughs> and then maybe some of your your winning magic will run up run up rub off on us. I should have brought the egos out for the video. <laughs> you should have. That'd be great. Does that count as pandering? It might be a little bit of pandering. <laughs> Well, like I said, we have many great questions from the audience, so we'll jump right into those. Um, speaking of awards, Brendan in the forums wants to know how goes the effort to create your own book awards. Uh, so we have. I've been discussing with a number of volunteers uh, the best ways to do that. Uh, that's still very much a thing we're trying to iron out before we pose some of the questions we've got to the public, because I very much want to have public input on it and not it not have it just be things I think are cool. Uh, so we're working on it. I'm hoping it will actually happen. It's looking right now uh, as though it's something that for 2016 we'll do through a website, and if it picks up steam, uh, then we'll look for a convention that might want to host an award ceremony in future years. But I think we'll just try to do it online the first year. Uh, for those of you who may not know what we're talking about here, uh, through a series of strange and flame war events that are Perhaps I will not bring the negativity of in here. Uh, the idea I came up with an idea for an award um, based on the elements of storytelling. So with awards like best ending and best villain, uh, best opening line, that sort of thing. And it seemed like something that was a great deal of fun and that could genuinely get people excited and talking about uh, books rather than talking about the politics of awards, which has really sort of infected our community of late. Um, and so it is definitely something that uh, I am I'm trying to make happen. And I have a number of amazing volunteers who are putting their expertise to it. Uh, it's been slowed down slightly by the fact that I have a novel coming out in a week, uh, but it will pick up steam again once I'm back from my tour. What is it about awards uh, that we always, because we, we've talked about the same thing, either doing like an award for the, the most popular book that we read in Sword and Laser or Book of the Year. Uh, it always seems like there's some attraction to, to awards. Is it just because we want to recognize the things we love? What do you think it is? Well, they're shiny. They're very pretty. They're very pretty. Well, if they're done right, yeah. But I think it's also that 
I mean, there, there's the mainstream success of sales, and that's something that happens uh, for a number of reasons, some known, some entirely arcane. Uh, but not all of the books that we love end up having the kind of sales that would keep an author going both uh, physically and mentally. And awards are a way of, of recognizing books that, uh, I mean, oftentimes they go to popular books as well, but it's a way of recognizing a book that is separated from sales. A book can win a major award and have sold a hundred copies, you know, that, that kind of thing has happened. Um, and so awards allow us to say something about what we like without it just being about our wallets. And uh, I think that because it's strictly about quality rather than saleability, um, people are really drawn to it. And different awards have different focuses as well. Uh, so it's, I mean, look, we, we all want to win things. Everybody everybody likes recognition. Everybody likes attention. Everybody likes to wear a pretty dress or a pretty suit and uh, and, and hold something shiny. Um, but I don't think that people will stop caring about them anytime soon. I think I care about it more than Tom cares about it. <laughs> I, I I think you're right. I think sometimes, and I'm I'm definitely not saying this about you, but I think sometimes people start awards because they want to win them. Uh, and, well, and I, I mean, I should say I, I I said from the beginning, and it's true that I will uh, recuse myself from consideration of any award that I might have a hand in creating permanently. But I I think there's also there's also just as powerful of a need to recognize, to want to give the yeah. awards too. And I I think that's I think you you talked about a very important aspect of that, which is recognizing something for its quality or its essence rather than just for where it was on some chart or other. Yeah. 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 Uh, Jenny wrote in with a question that I always have a problem trying to figure out how to pass along to an author. Jenny wants to know who is her favorite character in all of her worlds. And I know that authors have a hard time picking favorite characters any more than people would have a, a hard time picking their favorite children. Uh, so I, you can feel free to answer this in any way you want. Is, is there Are there characters that you find more enjoyable to write in certain moods as others? Or, or what, what can you tell Jenny? Because she, she's wanting to know something here. Well, I mean, I can tell you that... Uh, for other people, A through L, the library from the Fairyland books seems to be the clear favorite of every character I've created. I love A through L, uh, and I love writing him. I love writing Blunderbuss and the Marquess uh, from the Fairyland books as well. Like, the Marquess is the big villain. Villains are always fun to write. Blunderbuss is a stuffed wombat um, who uses insults to say I love you, so I get to come up with lots of creative insults. But to say my, my favorite character of of all my characters, it's really hard because they are, they're my babies, they're, they're people that I've, um, in some cases, really raised, September I raised from 12 to 17, so I don't, I don't really know all, all of them, honestly, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I do, um, my new book is called Radiance, and um, I will say that uh, Mary Pelham, who's a character in that, she's a young actress who comes to the moon to make her fortune and, and be successful in, in moon Hollywood, lunar Hollywood. Uh, and I, I love her so much. She's such a wonderful character to write and she's, she's sort of very loosely based on Mary Pickford. Um, and she's just a, a delight to have in my head. So this is a bit of a deviation from the questions, but I would love to hear more about Radiance because we got a lot of people asking on the forums, tell tell us more about it. We want to hear more about it. Sure. So um, when I first sold the book uh, and I would tell people about it, it was kind of a joke. I said, well, it's a deco-punk, alt-history, Hollywood, space opera, mystery, thriller with space whales. 
And now that's pretty much on the back of the book. <laughs> oh, never joke. You joke, people take you seriously. But that, that's what it is. Uh, it takes place in a world that is an alternate history in which space travel was discovered around 1870, uh, and in which all of the planets in our solar system are inhabited and inhabitable. Um, I promise there is actually hard science in it. There's reasons for, for this world existing. Uh, one of the sort of scions of the film industry in this world, which as I said is set on the moon, uh, is a documentary filmmaker. She's the daughter of uh, one of the great Gothic film directors, and uh, she goes to Venus to shoot a movie about a village that was destroyed mysteriously. And uh, three of her crew members die, and she disappears on film. Uh, and so the book explores uh, both what happened to her and how her disappearance just sort of annihilates the lives of everybody who touched her and how they try to put things back together and, and tell a story about something that they can't have an answer to. That they can't explain, right. Is, so, is this uh, going to be the first in the series or is this going to be a standalone? Um, it's a standalone right now. Honestly, like, I would love to return to the world. It's so much fun to write. It's so huge. Um, there's a lot of hints at the end of, of more that could be there. So maybe someday I'll return to it if it, if, if people like it. If they, they want to return, perhaps I will. But it is a completely self-contained story. It's Victorian-ish in its in its time period, right? It's more like, it's more like silent film art deco. Oh, so on the Edwardian side. Of, okay. <laughs> Yeah, the main events take place in the 1940s. Okay. Uh, oh, oh, okay. So it's 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 even beyond that. I gotcha. Um, yeah. Almost a new Elizabethan, <laughs> I guess. Georgian <laughs> is that? Can we call it Georgian at that point? Uh, and I assume yeah. it's all all different because of that. That's that's fascinating because yeah. it's not steampunk. It's no, it's an entirely it's different it's take. Different. Yeah, and um, because of the divergent point being around 1870, of course, the politics are both the same and very different because uh, new new worlds opened up to be explored and exploited uh, sort of halfway through the exploitation of the new world and the colonial powers sort of turned themselves outwards. So, for example, America is um, sort of split uh, and, and ruled by the American government and um, the Iroquois League. And uh, uh, the Iroquois League having become a much bigger thing that includes uh, many non-Iroquois tribes. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of divergent history uh, going on. So it's the 1940s, but World War II is not happening. Very cool. Um, Our next question comes from Camilla, who says, how does she come up with such entertaining book titles? Just saying, <laughs> I haven't even read her books, but I love the titles enough to want to. Well, I appreciate her saying that because I feel like I'm terrible at titles, actually. If it doesn't come right away, it's just brutal for me to come up with it. Um, Radiance, actually, was my editor's uh, notion because the original short story it was based on was called The Radiant Car Thy Sparrows Drew, which is the name of the uh, film being shot on Venus. And that's it, it, it's unwieldy. What I wanted was a sort of Zelazny type, uh, very poetic, old school science fiction title. But she was right. It, it's it's unwieldy, and I, I love Radiance as the title. Um, the girl who circumnavigated Fairyland uh, was me making a joke to myself about uh, old gnarly children's book titles in the early 20th century. And again, you should never joke because people will just take you completely seriously. Uh, and then I was stuck with a title that I can't believe I'm still saying it half with. <laughs> but people do seem to like it because it does what it says on the tin. Uh, I don't know. I do my best, and and I I labor over them unless they they come out of uh, thin air. But I try to 
tried. It's weird. It's started to happen where my adult books are single word titles and my children's books are these long, complicated ones. Not really sure. That wasn't a plan. Interesting. But I wonder if that's, that's a... Radiance. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if, if there's a... What the, I'm trying to think of a word that kind of describes titles like that. Um, I, I'm losing it right now. Apparently it's been a long poetic, day. In my, poetic. Poetic. Uh, more like Narrative. fun. and, and Whimsical. Uh, whimsical. Thank yeah. you. Whimsy. I feel like those names are they're very whimsical in a really wonderful way. And maybe that is something that is going to grab young adult readers' attention when they go to the bookstore. Um, and, and I mean, draw the, them in. the girl who fell beneath fairyland and led the revels there. And that's a story right there. I'm already yeah. drawn in. That was sort of the idea with those. And I know I'm very strongly affected by titles. When I was uh, a kid, I used to read all kinds of anthologies, uh, particularly the Datlow and Windling anthologies. And I used to, I never read the stories in order. I used to just open up to the table of contents and pick the titles I liked. So like titles have always been a really big deal to me. So I'm, I am very careful uh, because it, it really is the first words your books say to the readers. Well, Melanti asks if there's any chance that you'll finish or find a publisher for the last book of the A Dirge for Prester John series. The first two were published by Nightshade Books, which obviously, uh, Melanti says, had some issues. Yes. Uh, so we're going to kickstart the third book in the series after the tour for Radiance winds down, and uh, I have a, a, a moment of my brain to myself that is not devoted to Radiance. But we are going to kickstart the third book, uh, so be on the lookout for that. We did try to find a publisher for it, uh, but the problem is that when uh, like the first two books were published by a different publisher, really nobody wants to be the one to publish just a third book in a series to which they don't have the rights to the first two. So it, it was complicated trying to find one. Um, and I think kickstarting will be will be very fun and, and, and the, the best option for it. So it's going to happen. I promise I would never leave you hanging like that. I know that the second book ends uh, pretty drastically. <laughs> no, and I know that's I, not fair. That's tough. I've left you hanging for a couple of years now. But uh, a lot's been going on. And I, I, I absolutely uh, will, will be kickstarting it before the end of the year. Well, and that's it, an interesting point because... I think a lot of people thought self-publishing would come along and ruin publishing. And what it seems to be doing, and I think this is an example, is merely augmenting it. It's finding Ooh. situations that might otherwise be hopeless and saying, oh, wait, there is another avenue for it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I've always advocated a hybrid approach to publishing that uh, you should absolutely work with, with big publishers because what's really nice is being paid to write a book uh, like while you're writing it and, and not have to uh, worry about when it's going to be something that helps you feed your cats. Um, but if you can also self-publish and be able to uh, use those channels, then then you can be independent and in control of your own destiny. And if you can do both, it's the best. That way you don't have something like Nightshade melting down, ruining your entire career. Or, you know, Nightshade's not the first publishing company I've been involved with to melt down. I was with Bantam Spectra as well, and they uh, were reorganized into Random House and, and don't don't exist anymore. Um, so that happens all the time in publishing, and you want to be able to to go your own way when you have to, but it's also nice to go their way. So that's something I don't know too much about. So what exactly happens to authors who get in that situation? Do they have an equal amount of difficulty finding a home for, for the next book, especially if it's a series? It really depends on the situation. With Bantam Spectra, I, I often call it the Great Diaspora because uh, we there were so many authors, and we were just sort of set 
loose onto the rest of the publishing world. Many of us went to Tor, I did. Uh, many people went to Nightshade, and then a lot of some of them uh, were also caught up in their meltdown, and it's not not very much fun. Um, if you can get your rights reverted, then your situation is a lot better. Uh, it depends on how your the publisher melts down, whether mm. that can happen for you. And Ben Spectre was reorganized, so it's not as though, you know, my books aren't still in print through Random House, they're just not in print through Ben Spectre because that's not what it's called anymore. Um, but it can be very messy and very complicated and you need a good agent to be able to get you through it. Good advice. Uh, Rich says, and, and this is where I'm going to have difficulty with the whimsical titles, <laughs> reading Palimpsest? Say it again? Palimpsest. Palimpsest. Thank you. I, there's a running joke on Sword and Laser that I can't pronounce anything, so don't feel bad about me not being able to say that name. That's okay. Nobody can say it. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, reading it really tested me, and my brain was sore for days afterwards. It served as a reminder that I shouldn't get in a rut with my reading and that I need to step up my game sometimes to keep my brain from becoming flabby, getting hurt through overexertion. Does Catherine <laughs> get pressure from her publisher to make her books more accessible to more readers, or are they all, this is great, Catherine, there'll be blood running from readers ears once again well I mean yes I am I, I become more accessible it has always has for years and years and years and years been something I have been asked to do and honestly if you read the labyrinth and you compare it to what I'm writing now I am so much more accessible like I have taken the note I'm way 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 more accessible than I have been in the past um, like Oddly enough, we did think that Palimpsest was more accessible than the Orphan's Tales. In retrospect, that's probably not the case. But um, I do try with every book to balance what I think is important in literature and what I want to say and the way I want to say it with, with making it as accessible as possible. Um, it's kind of part of why Radiance has this sort of mystery thriller format that moves the plot along in a more traditional way. I had to do all these things that I hadn't done before, not because... They're not totally normal, but I just hadn't ever shot someone in a novel before, uh, and that so that was fun. <laughs> and I'm, I just I I I think that my plots are actually not as complicated as all that. It's the language that throws people, um, and I just think that language is wonderful and fascinating, and you should put it through its paces when you can. Uh, but I I am always trying to be more accessible. I'm pretty sure he meant bleeding ears as a compliment, by the way. I, I, I mean, I hope so. Uh, I, I do try. Uh, <laughs> I think I think he really wants you to get help him get in shape. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a it's a balance, right? Because if you're if you go too far on the accessibility, then then you risk being accused of writing fluff and not you know and not being inventive or challenging the reader. And so yeah, I think I think Rich is trying to say this is a good thing, really. And you have to be who you are as a writer. I'm never going to be Hemingway. That's not me. I have no interest in it, uh, in, in the simple declarative sentence thing. I would never finish a book I tried to write that way because it, it, it doesn't speak to me. It, it speaks to other people, and they should definitely write the books that speak to them. I try very hard to stay true to who I am and, and the books that I want to read while making stories that most people can get through with a minimum of blood. And that's why your fans love you, because you are writing you, you know, and that's that's incredibly important when people, you know, you can, it seems like you can't win sometimes, because if you deviate too much from your norm, then people are like, that's not, that's not Catherine, or that's not whoever. So it's, it's a tough balancing act to, to make. So just going with your gut and, and writing who you are, I think, is the most important thing. I agree. 
We have uh, a, a much less complex question from Frank, who just wants to know, will you be writing more Fairyland books? I don't have any plans for any more Fairyland books right now. There's the last one out in March. It's called The Girl Who Raced Fairyland All the Way Home. Uh, and for right now, that's the last one in the series. I'd like to do a short story collection at some point of in-world short stories. Uh, I don't have plans for any more, but never say never. Uh, I, I would not put it out of the realm of the possibilities to uh, to do an, a second series. It certainly would, would be a different protagonist if I did. Um, but right now, the Fairyland series is five books, and it will be done in March. Awesome. Koji-san says, how the heck did she keep track of all the stories in the Orphan Tales series of books? I would love to see her flowchart. Also, I'm massively looking forward to Radiance. Uh, so this is always a super awkward question uh, because I don't have a flowchart to show you. Uh, I never kept a single note writing the Orphan's Tales. And I, I'm not proud of that. Like, I was just really lazy. It seemed like less work to just write the book than to make charts and outlines because I'm not good at that kind of thinking. But I am good at holding all of that kind of stuff in my head. Now, I started writing The Orphan's Tales when I was 22. Uh, I didn't really know any better. If I were writing that book now, there's no way I would not keep notes. Um, but I didn't then. Uh, toward the end, I sort of had a notebook that I scribbled stuff in, but I, I really it somehow all just sort of stuck in my head. The thing is, when you when you create those characters, you know their lives. You don't have to like remember them the same way. And it's only two books. It's it's not a you know nine book series that needs a series bible or anything like that. But um, they were they were as real to me as any of my friends at the time. And I don't I don't have to have a flow to keep track of my friends' lives. So that was more or less. I did it. I think I think a lot of people need like something like Facebook to keep track of their friends' lives, and so I think that makes it extra impressive. A modern flowchart. Yeah, a timeline. So, would you? Did you find yourself just looking back at earlier writings, or were you able to just remember everybody in your head? Um, when I was doing the second book, I did go back uh, to the first book uh, a, a few times, but but for the most part. Um, I did just keep it in my head. Like it sounds, it sounds terrible. Like I, I, I think really, had I learned better study skills in school, uh, I would have been capable of, of, of writing it out in some way that would have kept myself more sane. Like I've seen people online, they have mapped out like every story and how it connects to the other ones, and I'm like, awesome. I, I will never do that. Uh, that just seems like so much work. But um, it, it just, it was how my brain worked at the time. I don't really understand it myself. It was a very long time ago. Uh, That's interesting that you say that, though, because you said that if you were to go back and do it, you would definitely need to have some kind of flow chart. But then you just said that you continue to just have everything in your brain in, in your future books. Or do you, the, when no, you're writing nowadays, now. do you do flow charts? I, do, I don't do flow charts, but I do outline now, especially with the children's books, with the middle grade books, because kids... Kids don't have a lot of tolerance for dicking around and not getting to the plot. So my plots needed to be... I learned so much about plotting from Fairyland, and they needed to be much tighter and turn on a much uh, more efficient engine uh, than, than my adult books. So when I'm talking to kids about this in school, I often say that um, kids don't necessarily want to read whole chapters about a guy eating a cookie and thinking about his past, and that's a real book. And then they all laugh because they don't really think it's a real book. Uh, not Marcel Proust um, but so yeah with Fairyland I, I started outlining but the thing is that I also write from the first word to the last word 
I can't jump around at all. I have ADD. If I jumped around, I would never go back and write the things that are uh, that are in the middle and I didn't want to write in the first place. So, uh, and if I write the if I know what happens at the end, I kind of get bored and don't want to finish it. So for the first couple of chapters, I will just sort of explore and push through, and then I'll stop, take a step back, and make an outline for the rest, sort of up to the end. Wait, so you don't want to you don't want to spoil yourself? I don't want to spoil myself. Until, like, I don't know, I'm comfortable with it if I'm, like, 70% through the book. But I, I want there to be options. Uh, otherwise, my brain's like, ah, I finished it. I'm on break. <laughs> hey, I, I think it's great. I, if it didn't work, and it obviously works, maybe there would be room for criticism. But you, you, you're able to pull it off. Hope so. <laughs> I think uh, I think evidence shows that you're able to pull it yes. off. Uh, Josh Lawrence, by the way, is a big fan. He is the person who created the theme song for Sword and Laser. He's also very active in our community, an old friend of both of us. Uh, and he writes, with the AI-themed silently and very fast, various short stories in the upcoming Radiance, very excited about that. She seems to be dipping into science fiction more often recently. Are there particular things she'd like to see done in science fiction, either by herself or others, particularly enjoyments or challenges of writing science fiction instead of fantasy? Well, I mean, often when I think of something that I want to see in science fiction, I go write it. A uh, big, big part of Silently and Very Fast was that um, I read so many AI books, so many uh, science fiction and seen movies and television that, that explore AI. And the lion's share of them, certainly not all, but the lion's share of them are the evil AI who is out to destroy humanity, sometimes for a good reason, uh, but often because it's part of their nature. And uh, I wanted to explore what it would be like for an AI to come into a world that already thought it was evil, that already had that whole mythology, uh, and also speak in the AI's voice. Because you know some of my, my favorite stuff in Ling is when Wintermute talks. And I like, I like you know, hearing it in their own words, but I never felt like there was enough of that. It's so much about the human's reaction to the AI, and I really wanted it to be more about the AI's reaction to humans. So I went and wrote that book. Um, the, the inhabited planets in Radiance is something that, that I would love to see more of. There, there is some with Leviathan Wakes and, and uh, 2312, uh, but really my mission statement with that was I want those planets that we thought might be out there before we knew they weren't out there. <laughs> that golden age science fiction uh, of Burroughs and Zelazny and all, all those wonderful writers who, who created these water world Venuses and these these crazy Marses that, uh, that that we now are absolutely positive don't exist. But there was a tiny possibility that they did at one point, and I loved that. I loved that sense of, of even our own neighborhood could be anything. And I don't want to be hemmed in by those photographs, those beautiful photographs that we get uh, from, from our satellites and probes. Um, and sometimes, like the planet where it rains diamonds, they find things that, that you know people wouldn't even write into a book because it, that, that seems like so overly ornate. Uh, but I would love to see more of that kind of really um, unrealistic, fantastic science fiction. It's fiction, too, not just science. Yeah, but excellent. Science, science is important. Uh, Josh has one more question, too. He says, what are the books you fell in love with enough to want to become a writer? <laughs> um, well, so one of them is called Seaward. It's by Susan Cooper. Um, and I read it as a child and then reread it as an adult and could not believe how much of my brain was really formed 
by that book. I was so in love with it. And so uh, I identified so strongly with the, the main character and, and I loved the language of it. And I remember the never ending story, just wanting to write a story that didn't end. Uh, the thing is that I was such a voracious reader as a kid and I read so many things that were beyond, like I, I started reading Stephen King when I was nine. I was oh, not me too, yeah. Read Stephen King. Well, a lot of people our age actually did start reading him quite young, and it was one. The ending of it, I think, is just so phenomenally beautiful, and and it's a feeling. It's it's a very strange feeling without a name that he manages to evoke uh, at the end of that book, and it's certainly one that that, that I've tried to evoke in an ending or two of my own. Um, but really, everything I read, including the back of the cereal box, made me want to be a writer because I just wanted to tell stories and make words. Well, speaking of making words, uh, my my one of my final questions was about NaNoWriMo, which is kicking Ooh. off very shortly. November is creeping up on us as we speak. So do you have any tips for people who are jumping into NaNoWriMo, maybe for the first time, or people like me who want to do it but have no idea this year? So I'm <laughs> kind of stuck. Uh, have, you, have you done it before, or what are your suggestions for writers? Uh, this is another story where... Um, 22-year-old cat sounds really arrogant. Uh, so I have done NaNoWriMo, but I have not done NaNoWriMo at the same time. You can definitely check out my pep talk. I did one of the pep talks like two years ago uh, for more about this. But um, I just graduated from college and uh, moved back to America and found out about NaNoWriMo. It was only in its second year then. Um, I had not really written anything but poetry at that point, but I wanted to see if I could write a novel. And I thought it sounded awesome, but it was October, and I didn't want to wait. And because I was full of piss and vinegar and being young and not knowing any better, I said, 30 days is for pussy, as I'm doing it in 10. <laughs> I did. Uh, and that was the labyrinth. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, all right. Well, so, I don't think I can live up to that. Jeez. No, no. Like, here's, no, here's the thing. Like, okay. So I had no idea how to write a book. None. Like, zero. Uh, people used to say that The Labyrinth is a 200-page poem without big margins, and I used to get really mad, but now I feel safe admitting it's completely true. It's, I, I had no clue, so I picked the loosest thing I could think of to hang a plot on where I could just do whatever I wanted to with language, and a maze seemed like a good idea. Like, I just threw everything I had at it with no notion of whether it was any good uh, and no real rhyme or reason except that I wanted to make something. Uh, I could have totally failed and because I didn't, I wasn't actually officially signed up for NaNoWriMo, nobody would even have known. Uh, but I, I didn't fail at writing the word count. Whether or not The Labyrinth is a successful work of fiction, I, I am so far away from it at this point, I can't even possibly tell. But I'm sure uh, it is. <laughs> but the, the, thing, the thing about NaNoWriMo is it's a deadline, and deadlines are so incredibly important. Uh, Self-imposed if you don't have deadlines from the outside yet, and I think it's a great and wonderful thing. And my, my one overarching piece of advice for people who are doing it is I know that one of the themes is it can be crap and it doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter. But you can also write something amazing. It's only 1,600 words a day. Like, it's actually not as much as all that. And it, you don't have to stop writing at the end of November either. You can keep it going. But uh, I find that 
I can only keep up the idea that I'm awesome and have the right to speak for like 30 days. That's a good amount of time to keep up any kind of ego about my own writing and, and keep one idea in my head. So use that, be as amazing as you can. It's only 30 days where you don't have any dips in self-confidence. You can keep it up for that long and create something amazing. It is possible. Well, that, that gives me hope. Yeah. Again, even though I've done it twice successfully, I still every year feel like this is going to be the year that maybe I do something better or I just completely fail. But I can't let myself fail. That's the problem. I can't not complete it. So I either don't do it at all or I do it and I finish it. And, you know, quality varies. Yeah. It's but the thing for me that just gets the excuses out of the way. That's the important part of NaNoWriMo yeah. is it says here from for this 30 days, you're just going to go. You No more excuses. Just write. Just make yourself do it. Yeah. And that's incredibly valuable. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. And Radiance comes out on October 20th? Yep. That's very exciting. We can't wait to check it out. Where can people, where can people follow all your work online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kat Valenti. You can find my website at CatherineMValenti.com. Uh, and you can find me on Facebook and more or less anywhere else online that you find people. And thank you guys so much for listening, viewing, and supporting the show. Of course, we are funded entirely by our patrons over at patreon.com slash swordandlaser. So thank you so much for helping to support the show and enabling it to grow throughout the years. And you can also support the show by buying our books through our picks page over at swordandlaser.com slash picks. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 415-7-SWORD-6. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.